Welcome back to episode 15 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, a companion podcast where Ben and I go along with our um, chronological reading plan, talk about the passages that we're reading, and answer any questions that you may have. So our first question this week is sort of a clarification on just one of the the laws in the story. So there's a law we find Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, that says parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Mm-hmm. And then the, the question asker then in reading Joshua and the story of Achan, mm. uh, where the whole family dies because Achan took uh, treasures that were dedicated to destruction. And so their question is just, how does that square? Why did everybody die for Achan's sin? Yeah, it's a great question. There is a tension throughout the Old Testament where both of these things seem to be present. A commitment from Yahweh that... Um, only the one who sins will die. We see that repeated here in Deuteronomy. We see it very strongly stated in Ezekiel, for example. But then we also see this communal uh, blessing and punishment that seems to happen as well. So what do we what do we do with that? I would say that there are a couple of ways we could take it. One, we could say that in cases of particularly heinous sin, there might be a need for the the people of Yahweh to be protected from the influences of that sin. And so Yahweh may make exceptions to the rules. Uh, We could also read this as the Israelites are not to punish beyond an individual, but Yahweh sometimes will take that step on his own. And we could also see this as suggesting that there was a communal aspect to Achan's sin. For example, all the people knew of what Achan had done and And it is kind of hard to imagine that he had dug up everything and hidden it and the rest of the family was unaware. And so I think that any of those three things are possible. I think that the most likely case of what a um, Israelite reading at the time would think is that this is something that when we have the rules of what we're to do from Yahweh, Yahweh can do what he wants and he will punish differently and or that there was some kind of collaboration with others for the sin. I think that makes the most sense. <clears throat> and I, I wonder too if if we would even necessarily say that they died because of his sin, or did they all die because they were all contaminated by the uncleanness or the the uh, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say that it was a it wasn't so much it's not a culpability issue. It's a contamination issue. It's a pollution issue. Sure, uh, because you know. These were these things were dedicated to destruction, and so they were. That was that, and and when the person asked me this question, I just realized, like, man, there's just so much I don't know about the ban and just how how it works, like how an ancient Israelite would have understood it, like it, and uh, so that we can make we can build the bridge so that it will make more sense to us, you know. Uh, and maybe that's not possible. I mean, maybe it's just, it really is something that, that existed then and there is no analog, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think if I'm remembering right, I think different authors and, and, and figures in the past have kind of taken Joshua to be a kind of a parable of like our fight against sin, which, you know, sure. Fair enough. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you dedicate everything, you know, to destruction that is sinful in your life and, if you hold on to any of it, then that contamination, you know, continues. I mean, yeah, that's 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 true. Uh, I don't know if that's why Joshua was written, <laughs> but I mean, that doesn't make that not. It true. can be historically <clears throat> accurate and a parable against sin. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just thinking through, right, that they would not have seen, you know, so Deuteronomy is speaking to maybe a culpability thing, like if a dad does something wrong, his son is not guilty of it. And I think that, you know, I'm glad you made the point, just the distinction between the judgment that Yahweh will uh, bring down and then the like the punishments within Israelite society. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a lot of sense with that as well. Um, so anyway, so I just wonder, you know, since he took it and then he buried it underneath his tent, right? So like it, it literally was like, putting something radioactive underneath your house the whole house is yes. radioactive now that's, that's, <laughs> that's all that's all irradiated and so it all has to be destroyed 
uh, st again, still doesn't make it very palatable for us. You know, there is no situation uh, that Christians would ever encounter that would make us react in this way. <laughs> I imagine it wasn't very palatable at the time. I mean, well, if, that's true. That's true. If we try to imagine that Achan has small children, for example, no, I don't no. think that the Israelites were standing around right. thinking like, no one was thrilled. Well, this is to what do happens. This. You yeah. know, I imagine that was a a horrifying moment of realization of the importance of holiness and the mm -hmm. the destructive effects of sin and yeah. and death. So then the second question we had is, and this is sort of a bigger picture kind of reading the Bible question. Ooh. We have seen throughout the Torah, and will continue to as we get through the Bible, that supernatural things happen, uh, miracles, angelic visitations, visions, the giants, you know, and that <laughs> whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so the seraphim, the burning serpents in the wilderness. And I, so the question would be, is it not at this point wiser to kind of take the the realistic or the the to use more like a scholarly word a demythologized track with some of these things to make the Bible or to help the Bible be more palatable to a modern audience who do not have room in our minds really to consider that something like a burning fiery serpent spirit being. <laughs> <laughs> or a 12 foot tall half demon warrior king you know, ever actually existed in this you know four-dimensional universe that we inhabit does that question make sense like isn't yeah. it just for the sake of you know uh removing a barrier basically to entry for folks sure. who who just cannot you know they look at all the supernatural stuff in the Bible and they're like, that's just not the universe we live in. So why would I believe any of it, you know, since it's t basically telling yeah. fairy tales? I think that you can. May and when you say modern, you mean modern Western, right? It's the, Indeed. The, <clears throat> the supernatural elements are not a problem for people outside of our culture and cultures like ours. And you're right that if we were to remove the supernatural elements from the from the Bible, it would become more palatable. In fact, there are churches that do that, even all the way down to the resurrection of Jesus, not needing to be real, but um, a moral um, story. You know, uh, an example for us to aspire to, the, mm -hmm. the power of goodness in life. The problem I have with that is if we ever want a person to believe God is real, then they're going to have to swallow a bigger pill mm -hmm. than all the stories of the angels <laughs> and the right. everything together because we fundamentally believe that the universe is held together moment by moment by a deity a god named Yahweh who listens to each one of us you know when when we have prayer time in church i think about this sometimes when everyone is praying silently we believe that Yahweh is listening to each of us and not just us but literally every person in prayer around the world at that moment, giving them equal attention. Mm -hmm. um, this is beyond our scope of ability to imagine or understand. The idea then also that he has not only the right to forgive and ability to forgive and desire to forgive, um, but has already done so and provided a way for life, a life with him forever that we cannot see, right? right. A, an eternity, with him, which is something that our eyes can't take in. I think if we worry too much about making the other elements palatable, we're going to run the risk of people stepping into a kind of Christian ethic mm -hmm. without ever becoming Christians. <laughs> a form of godliness, but denying its power. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, the biggest miracle of all is always that mm -hmm. Yahweh <laughs> is mm -hmm. and, and that he holds all of this together moment by moment. And there's no way out of that. I hear the the desire, though, because if I'm talking to, I have several friends who are not believers. And when we talk about Bible stories, there's almost this like, well, you really think that this is what actually happened, right? And the Bible just kind of dressed it up. And most of the time, that's not what I think. Right. But it, may, it would make it more palatable for them if I said so, but it would not bring them any closer to Jesus. Right. And, and, and of course, you know, this was my phrasing of the question, but like, what do we even mean by the word palatable? Mm -hmm. Like, is that desirable that it should be palatable? Perhaps it shouldn't necessarily be. Maybe part of the whole point is that it sounds like a word from another world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a great you know, way to the, put the it. Challenge, yeah. That the challenge is actually built in. 
you know, and I think that there's some what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery lurking yes. behind that of like, well, ancient people were dumb. <laughs> that they believed all these things that now we know don't exist, you know, and it's like, yeah, let's build a time machine and go back and tell ancient people about gravitational waves and quarks and see what <laughs> look they give you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, but there's evidence for those things. It's like, oh, there absolutely is, but no one's ever seen one uh-huh. and we never will, you know, just like there's evidence for these other things too. You know, and I wonder sometimes if, and you hear this a lot, right? In the current, our current, at least American context that, there are a lot more and more people, especially younger people, are spiritual but not religious. I get it. Like I get what you know what what they're trying to say, and that there are people who love Jesus that would describe themselves that way, right? And it's anyway. So I I I get all that, uh, and I think there are contexts that it makes sense to say that. But for people who aren't Christian, you know, but who then consider themselves spiritual but not religious, it's like all right. So ask them. You know, what do they believe in? Do they believe more in angels and spirits or in God? And my hunch is that many of them would go, oh, I absolutely believe in angels and spirits and and tarot cards and astrology and like all the little things. We're good. Yeah. Ghosts. Absolutely. Demonic spirits. Yes, indeed. Machine elves. When I take magic mushrooms, Google that later if you want. Yes, I've talked to them and some of them are mean and some of them are nice. You know, like all I have not done magic mushrooms. I'm just saying I'm about to say, whoa. (laughs) I'm aware of some of the phenomena that people come into contact with when they uh, when they do that. My point just being that actually the little the little the little guys, the fiery serpents is the easy part. Yes. (laughs) Well, and that's what you were saying, you know. The hard part is Let's say there is a creator and there's just one that's also three. <laughs> uh-huh. And one of the one and threes also became a human. <laughs> he was a real human. And in fact, he is a real human. He's alive now. Where is he? Everywhere. <laughs> nowhere. In the little crackers on the table at the front, some of us think. In the poor person trying to catch your attention on the street, like, we don't really know. <laughs> but one day, he's going to appear in the sky riding a horse. <laughs> but I actually believe that. But I really do believe that. <laughs> yeah, you can put our, our beliefs in a way that just makes them sound and really like, ridiculous. Well, yeah. and I know that, like, N.T. Wright, who we both respect greatly like he refers to that as the astronaut jesus theory (laughs) (laughs) and it's like do okay will i be disappointed if jesus doesn't ride out of the sky on a horse no like if it happens some other way that's fine but like when i think about it Mm -hmm. devotionally or or whatever else like that is what i think Mm -hmm. the point being yeah that i agree with what you said that i think palatability is actually not the priority that we think it is yeah now, I will say, I think it's always worth having a conversation about barriers or perceived barriers to, to people taking the faith seriously or, or even wanting to hear about Jesus or study the Bible. Like, I think that's always a worthwhile conversation to have and one to continue to have because, I mean, different contexts are different, you know. And so there might be a setting where it really is better maybe to take to, – to, to downplay some of those elements, you know, and try and focus on other things. And, and we have to, you know, Christians have to make that call in wisdom and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think generally speaking, we have to let the Bible speak for itself and not ignore or downplay these elements mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily try and seek to explain them necessarily either. I thought that was a worthwhile question and just wanted to kind of talk through because it'll, I mean, it's not like the Bible stops this sort of thing once we leave Ooh. the Torah behind. Like, again, Jesus is sort of the pinnacle of it, you know? So it just kind of only ramps up from here. So this next week, we will be finishing up Judges and reading the entirety of the book of Ruth and just getting into First Samuel. Uh, and so first, we'll talk a little bit about the end of Judges and all of the things we talked about last week continue and only get worse. Uh, the second half of Judges, we see the 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 cycle of sin and destruction and just 
violence uh, and the, the the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel uh, are just circling the drain down and down and down. Uh, and so by the end of the book, with the Civil War, uh, with Benjamin, they're on the verge of destroying one another. And uh, it's, I think, important to to think through and just consider the fact that none of this the violence and corruption and transgression has anything to do with the Canaanite peoples. It's all coming from within the Israelites themselves. Yeah. It's not uh, foreign corruption that's driving them to do any of this. That'll kind of come later. But in this stage, in the story the Judges is telling, uh, the uh, call is coming from inside the house, so to speak. The, the evil is within. And especially towards the end of Judges, we start to see the refrain, you know, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did uh, as they saw fit or what was good in their own eyes. And so I think we can read Judges as really a, that the solution that it puts forward for all this violence is a king, but not any king, because there is some ambivalence in Judges about kings and monarchy, and we see this in the story with Abimelech, uh, uh, one of Gideon's sons, but that really the right sort of king is the solution uh, to the chaos and the violence that the tribes are experiencing. You know, that the judges, uh, as far as we can tell, each individual judge or chieftain, like they really only had a regional or a tribal kind of authority, you know, that none of them were national leaders. They were really just tribal leaders that led occasionally, like Deborah and Barak, I mean, they led a military mm-hmm. coalition of some of the tribes. And I think Jephthah does as well. But that there is no sense of, you know, that any of them are are leaders over the whole nation. And especially by the time we get to Samson, I mean, Samson is considered a judge, but he really does no leading. <laughs> no. He is sort of a one-man band <laughs> of, of superheroic destruction and, and vengeance. Uh, he's not motivated by, you know, protecting his own people or anything like that. Samson is driven purely by selfish motivation and, and his own lusts and passions and and thirst for vengeance against the Philistines. And, um, and so, yeah, we just see the degrading of the office of judge itself. Uh, as you read, you know, I think you should notice whenever Levites pop up, especially because they contribute to the corruption. Uh, that we see, especially in these last few stories, that there are Levites involved in idol worship. Uh, the horrendous story uh, towards the end of Judges with the Levite and his concubine who are caught uh, out at night in one of the cities of Benjamin and just the way that he treats her. Uh, and so you see just the, the institutions that were set up by the law of Moses, tribal elders and the Levites and presumably the priests as well, just... It's going bad. It's mm-hmm. all going bad. I think the last thing I'll say, just something to notice, is <laughs> that Judges is a particularly um, gross book of the Bible. Yes. <laughs> and and really for one particular reason, that, that just physical maiming is a theme that runs from beginning to end. And so the book begins with, one of the, I think, Amorite kings having his thumbs and his big toes cut off, and it ends with, I mean, the the Levites' concubine being butchered into twelve pieces, and then also the the Benjamites being massacred, and then them stealing wives. And so anyway, so there's just this idea of a body being mutilated and being butchered is a theme that runs throughout. <laughs> On one level, that that is kind of the a parabolic show and tell of like this is what's happening to Israel, <laughs> like we are chopping ourselves into pieces through our own sin and, and selfishness and corruption. So it's, yeah, it's uh, this is bracing reading. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, certainly understand why, you know, most of these stories don't make it into children's Bibles. And even the few Samson stories that do are majorly watered down. <laughs> I get it. You know, it makes sense. <clears throat> um but I think that trying to understand, you know, the big story that Judges is telling in terms of the the ever-deepening destruction that the people are are kind of just wildly driving themselves into, um, you know, and again, I think we as modern readers are like, okay, I got it in the first story, why do you have to keep telling it? But I think the Judges really wants us to face up to 
the depths of what depravity can really look like, you know, not just to reflect on how bad they had it in the ancient world, but again, to then turn around and look at our own selves and our own context and, and, and just think about the cycle of sin that our societies are trapped in and the ways that we're driving ourselves towards destruction and and how the good news of a righteous king uh, would be the solution or would be the guide out of some of these messes that we're getting ourselves into. Do you think we're supposed to read like a decline happening there or are these stories not arranged that way and it's just there's kind of misbehavior in almost all of them? Like is is Samson considered worse than Jephthah and that's why he comes after? I think yes. I think that, and, and we don't know fully the chronology of when these different judges were like historically active sure and it may not have been you know in this sequential order or there was probably some overlap or, or whatever mm-hmm. else but i think certainly they're presented in a in a kind of declining way um i think some of the other judges do things that are to us far more reprehensible than some of the things that samson does sure but i do think that a telltale difference with Samson, and I referenced this in the summary, is just that he he does just act selfishly. Like, there is no sense of him leading his tribe uh, at all. Like, there's just none of that. It's just all about Samson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially, <clears throat> you know, and Samson's a tragic figure, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, that Samson and Saul, I feel like, are kind of uh, tragic figures that link these these the books of Judges and Samuel together. One of the links, you know, between those those two scrolls, uh, that Samson gets a an enunciation scene, really. Like, I mean, the kind of the the motif of a messenger, an angelic being coming and announcing the birth of someone. You know, we see that a few times, you know, throughout the Bible, culminating, of course, in Jesus. And so, our expectations for Samson, uh-huh. I think, are primed, and they and and judges wants this to be the case. Like, they want us to be like, okay, great, like. Here he is, you know, here's the man who will finally lead us and and be the king or the chieftain that we really need. And then he just absolutely isn't. And so I think mm-hmm. that there's a, a uh, yeah, there's absolutely a decline. Even though, again, like Jephthah and his whole deal and everything else, like to us, are like, what? How? You know, that's worse, than, quote unquote, worse than Samson. But I think the fact that Samson... I think almost without exception, all of his actions are undertaken for selfish reasons, even if they're even if they were, quote unquote, good in Mm -hmm. terms of inflicting, you know, vengeance on the Philistines or whatever else. I mean, they were still he was doing them, you know, for his own selfish motivations, not for any any uh, uh, righteous reason or or any way that he was leading the people. So, yeah, I think in short, there is definitely and certainly a decline. The fact that he's a Nazarite is interesting. Mm -hmm. Right, because that's different than any of the other judges. That's yes. the first time we see that. Can you talk a little bit about what the Nazarite vow is and what you think might be significant about Samson being a Nazarite? Yeah, so the Nazarite vow is is laid out in number six, I think, six or seven. And uh, it appears to basically be a way for run-of-the-mill Israelites to dedicate themselves in kind of a, a ministerial way, kind of parallel to the priests and Levites, but without, you know, because if you weren't in the tribe of Levi, you just couldn't be a Levite. There might be a couple of exceptions to that, you know, but for the most part, that was the rule. So like some righteous Issacharian, you know, who wants to who dedicate himself or dedicate his child or whatever else, you know, he's not a Levite, so he never, he just never can be. Like there's no way to do that. And so I think that it was a way for them to, express their their piety really or their commitment to the covenant Mm -hmm. it seems like at least in numbers like i think the assumption is is that you become a nazarite for a period and then you come out of that and then you're not a nazarite anymore so you kind of you take the vow for a season um so it is a little similar like for us you know for churches who practice lent or whatever else that you're kind of you're I think it was far more strict than Lent, right. you know, but, but that idea that it was a season of mm-hmm. kind of dedication or repentance or fasting. Paul might have taken a Nazarite vow in Acts, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, and so, you know, different, different figures. So I think what's different about Samson is that the angel tells Manoa and wife that he will be a Nazarite and like he's supposed to be a Nazarite for his whole life, which is unique. 
yeah, so I think that that's kind of the context of all that. And so Samson is unique in that he was a Nazarite from birth. Uh, you weren't supposed to cut your hair. You weren't supposed to drink any wine or even really touch anything. I think grapes, raisins, raisins were a, a pretty major fun time snack for them. So that that's actually something, you, you know, you'd be giving up on a daily basis not to eat any raisins. And I believe you weren't supposed to have any sex. Uh, and so Samson, the only thing he abides by is the hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and not forever. And But then they cut it, you know, and then Delilah and the, the Philistines cut his hair and he loses his powers. <laughs> not because he was a superhero, but because I think we're given to understand that the Holy Spirit was honoring his parents' Nazarite vow over him, but then... You know, his hair being cut is kind of the breaking of that vow, and so the Holy Spirit uh, left him. This is one of those times, like, I get it when, when like, you know, every every couple years, you know, Christianity Today or, uh, and the number Barna of people, group, right? yeah, the Barna Group, you know, and the number of Christians, evangelical Christians who will, who kind of think of the Holy Spirit more as, like, the force from Star Wars than a person. It's like, I do get it. Like in the Samson stories, yeah. he is a lot more like the Force. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Samson than he is a person, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I I can understand that. But well, uh, and I and I think even with that, that just goes that just even heightens the tragedy, you know, of Samson that he was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, you know, and he wasn't, uh, and he just did not. I mean, Samson does not appear to be a very pious person, no. you know, in any way, shape, or form. And so there's just nothing, there's just nothing, you know, all these expectations are kind of built up over him, and then he just totally fails. And he's just totally not the righteous king. He yeah. just isn't. How are we supposed to read the Delilah story? Um, so you have this utterly foolish thing, right? So the only th- the only part of the vow he's not broken is his hair. Yep. You know, he's broken the do not touch a dead animal at least twice. Once to give get some honey and another time to take on some Philistines with a donkey jawbone. Yep. Um, we know that he has not remained celibate. Nope. Um, he has no self-discipline with his diet. He nope. has broken them all but that one. And he fancies Delilah. Yeah. And earlier, you know, a wife had uh, asked him or a, a woman had asked him a, a, a solution to a riddle. Uh-huh. And kind of nagged him, and he gave in. And that his wife, I guess, had done that. And then Delilah, you know, is nagging him for the secret to his powers. And then he he tells her something that's not true, and we're like, well, good on you. And then she summons Philistines into the room, tells him they're upon him, and he breaks out. And then that happens again. And so, I mean, it strains the believability of a story how are we supposed to read that is he is he just being dumb is he cocky what's what's going on with that i think that <clears throat> i think that it's an indication that samson really thought that all of this was coming from him and that they were never going to be able to take him even if he told delilah the secret hmm. uh, as i think how i would read that you know that it's a a uh, and that ultimately may be why the holy spirit left him at that point you know that just that it was a a culmination of, of of a pattern on his part to some extent even his him being a a uh, substitute for the rest of the people in a negative fashion you know um that he is disregarding the fear of the lord and the law of the lord and the presence of the lord with him and so the lord left you know and, and i and i think even what looking happens forward when finally completely breaks the covenant well and that's i think looking forward to i mean this is a this is a uh exile preview i guess mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a clue towards the exile that you know israel will will transgress its vows with the lord um you know we know with the solomon solomon cycle of stories and and you know that there's a lot to be said for non-Israelite ladies, you know, and kind of his wives leading him astray. And I think that they led him astray because they were foreigners. They didn't lead him astray because they were women. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, and again with Samson, right, he should never have been in, he, he should have been celibate since he was a Nazarite, you know, mm-hmm. so just the fact that, that uh, 
he wasn't, you know, as a breaking of the vows. And so, yeah, I think I think we can... I don't read him as being super intelligent. <laughs> I would agree, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I think just the, the bigger theological point there, I think it's just to, to cause Israel to reflect on and, of course, for us to, to reflect on the ways that we do that and 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 I think to read Jesus as a a positive version of Samson that he let his enemies kill him <laughs> mm-hmm. unlike Samson you know who had to be well and John the Baptist taken really by force like yeah that's a true too capitulation of the Samson yeah. story. and John also might have been a Nazarite you mm-hmm. know or, or something akin to that yeah, yeah. so I I'm just curious about your thought about something so I read a book a while ago and you just kind of alluded to this that one of the things we're supposed to see in Judges is a lot of the characters as stand-ins for how Israel could be if they choose different directions, right? And so we see with Samson, again, this disregarding of a covenant, you know, the Nazarite vow covenant, um, and eventually when his breaking of it is absolutely complete, the Lord leaves him and does not return until he humbles himself, right? And yeah. then, then then does return, but still it results in his destruction, right. him trusting in himself rather than in Yahweh. Also, another character that is kind of attached to that idea. Well, let me just ask you, let me, before I go on, do you think there's something to that? Do you, do you see characters throughout Judges that... Um, we can read Israel's, you know, if you behave this way, this is the future that's 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 waiting for you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the uh, representational substitutionary life is throughout mm-hmm. Hebrew way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's reflecting the sacrificial system. It's what you know the king was, and ultimately we see that in Jesus. Like, I mean, I think. Jesus being a substitute for his people wouldn't that would not have been a a unfamiliar idea mm-hmm. I think to to Hebrew people um, they of course thought he was going to be victorious on their behalf which he was but you know victorious right. in a certain way <clears throat> uh, but no I I think absolutely that's present in Judges one of the characters and I just love to hear your thoughts because this has always stuck with me I read the book a number of years ago now. Um, talks about the concubine, the Levite's concubine, yeah. is a representative of Israel because mm-hmm. she is torn apart. Right. And the people show themselves to be, as you said earlier, their own worst enemies. Uh. We see this whole book is about foreign invaders and Yahweh rescuing them, but then the ones they really need rescued from are themselves. Right. Um, and even Yahweh, when speaking to the people in the midst of that civil war, does not seem to be... Um, helping avoid loss of life. <laughs> and so, yeah, that to me is a way that the book ends, right? That she is uh-huh. the victim at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, do do you think that the average Israelite would have read Judges and thought, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to be torn apart into pieces just like she is? You know, and I, I think that the conclusion that Judges wants us to reach is that we need a good king, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that, yes, I think that they would have heard these stories and and uh, known, you know, that it was it was talking about something that was wrong with them, you know, not foreigners or not whatever else, you know, but that the this rebellion, this transgression of the covenant was going to well up within their own hearts and they needed someone to lead them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's really what it boils down to. I have one more question about the book of Judges. And so it comes from Jephthah's story. Uh-huh. And we know the story of Jephthah. If you're listening to the podcast, you've recently read it. You've heard it before. He vows um, that he, when he comes home, if the Lord will give him victory, when he comes home, the first thing to come out to greet him from his home, he will make a burnt offering of. And then as he comes home, his daughter runs out to meet him. And then he carries through. It seems like both he and his daughter's understanding of Yahweh is that a vow made must be fulfilled. And so she willingly goes to um, be sacrificed. Like I, I have also like read things that have called into question whether we should read this as him actually burning her. Um, like would he have done that? Or is this more she's being sort of dedicated, you know, so she's sent to the tabernacle or whatever else to live a life, 
you know, because it, it specifically talks about that she's going to not get married and remain a virgin. And and so just this I the expectation, you know, uh, that she's dedicated to the temple or tabernacle service. So she will not be getting married because she's, I guess, one of these ladies who minister at the gate or, you know, that she's going to be serving some function. You know, I think that that's obviously I like that interpretation because it it kind of solves the riddle immediately you know it's like all right i mean still kind of a rough end of the deal for her (laughs) you know something she didn't uh choose or or whatever else you know i think that if we kind of stick with the the other reading that he does wind up burning her you know we've and we've talked about this before that the bible often does not comment on the stories it's telling And sometimes people take that to be, you know, the silence is approval. And I think that throughout these, you know, first dozen episodes, we've kind of challenged that over and over that uh, human sacrifice was abhorrent to the Israelites officially. I mean, they did quite a bit of it by the end, uh, which was, you know, horrifying. So human sacrifice was abhorrent to the Israelites, which means that they would have read this with the same amount of disgust and horror that we would. And so again, not every story in the Bible is meant to be uplifting to you, <laughs> you know, or to anybody. This would be one of those that probably wouldn't be uplifting to anybody. You know, Jephthah is rash and uh, uh, seems to be a capable military leader, you know, but that doesn't translate, you know, into into righteousness in all areas. So yeah, I mean, I think that we we read this and we we sit back and go, what in the world is happening, <laughs> you know? And it's just I think another because he's the last judge before Samson, right? No, there's some small ones after him. Oh, I there's think. some little ones. Okay, but he's the last main one or the mm-hmm. last kind of featured featured judge. Well, and so again, I think it's just it's this decline we've talked about of like how could somebody ever reach a conclusion that that's what should be done? You know, where are the people that are supposed to be teaching them the Torah? Where are you know the tribal chieftains that would be like, mm, <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't do this? Where is he offering this burnt offering? Because if he's doing it at the tabernacle, I think they would have stopped him. So that means he's doing it somewhere else, which isn't supposed to be happening at all anyway. You know, so I mean, just all of that, I think ties together into just really driving home for us just the amount of chaos and confusion and bloodshed that was happening really without central institutions. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, you know, uh, that there wasn't one single temple. There wasn't one single king, you know, and and this is sort of the the chaos and the disaster that results. Yeah, Judges is a tough book. Um, The Jephthah story and I think that you said this right, is that just because the Bible doesn't come out and say, and this isn't what Yahweh would have wanted, um, I think that the reader would know that what Jephthah appears on the surface to, to be doing is a an act of faith. You know, I'm taking my vows so seriously, I'm willing to give up my daughter for it, is not what he should have done. Yeah. The proper thing would have been to repent of having made a rash vow. Yeah. Which numbers makes allowance for. And... You know, that he could have redeemed her per Leviticus 27. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's, it's, uh, and again, I think there is some open, there isn't, there isn't openness there of like, did he actually burn her to death? Eh, maybe not. Uh, but that even if he did, I think that, again, the tragedy is we just got finished reading laws that, you know, make this so that it, it wouldn't happen because Yahweh has no interest. I mean, the later prophets throughout just talk about that it doesn't even enter his mind to ask for human sacrifice, except for that one time with Abraham. But it, but Isaac was never in any actual danger. You know, there, he was never going to kill him. Um, and uh, and I think Genesis twenty two that this is reaching back a couple months now. But I mean, there's definitely a lot of indications in the story that this is a one time test for Abraham, not something to be repeated. Right. But, you know what? I said that was the last question of judges. I do have another one that we can talk about or not. Um, there seems to be very obvious parallels between the story of the Levite's concubine and the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Absolutely. What What are we supposed to take from that? Well, I, I think that it's very intentional that there are parallels there. And I think that, again, it's the, 
like they have hit the bottom of the barrel Mm -hmm. that Israel itself and not like the borderland, like the story isn't happening out in the wild, well, wild East, you know, with Manasseh and everybody across the river, like Benjamin is in the middle of the promised land. Gebeah itself is just north of what would, will become Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so it's like here, right smack dab in the middle of Eden, (laughs) They are doing exactly what the Sodomites and the Gomorans, you know, did <laughs> back in the day with Lot. And uh, and so I think it's a very sobering, you know, statement again on this is how far they that we fell. This is how far we can fall. Mm-hmm. And again, for us, I think, you know, we may never be. And probably never will be in that exact situation, but just to never take it for granted that that each of us or us as a group. And I think it's also telling that this is a whole group of people, you know, because people, a person is smart, but people are stupid. <laughs> you know, and so it's like the we are capable of tremendous wickedness. Mm-hmm. All of us. All it takes is a few changes to our circumstances. You know, I think it was in one of the Batman movies. I don't remember exactly what. It's the Joker. It's a line from the Joker because he and Batman are, you know, because that's what the movie's about, right? Is our humans fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? And the Joker's theory is that all it takes is just a few, a few little things, inconveniences, and whatever else, and I can get these people to eat each other. You know, is <laughs> kind of the idea. And honestly, I think the Bible agrees with the Joker. <laughs> Or rather, let me let me flip that around. That the Joker is actually expressing a biblical worldview. In that That's probably moment. a better a better way to say it. <laughs> that without that righteous king, I can get these people to eat each other. You know, mm-hmm. and I I think you can see the uh, you know you can imagine the devil if we wanted to if we wanted to tack on a sort of Job style prologue to Judges. <laughs> <laughs> That Christians in, you know, 3,000 years will be reading whatever Christianity is like by then if the Lord tarries. <laughs> Just the devil being like, a little foreign invasion, a little famine. I can get these people to eat each other. And and there, and thus and so it goes. So next week we're also reading the charming and lovely and gentle little doily of a book. <laughs> the story of Ruth. <laughs> I mean, is that not... It's a wonderful description. (laughs) But Ruth is definitely a counterpoint to Judges. It is a peaceful book. There are no bad guys. (laughs) Almost all the characters uh, are faithfully obedient to to what is right and to the law. uh, And and kind of these, these interpersonal interactions kind of dominate rather than... I mean, there are no battles in Ruth. There are no great deeds... You know, like it's it is a little story about little people, not literally little people. Although if (laughs) there was a biblical book for hobbits, it would be Ruth. Mm. It would be Ruth. Yes. Yes. So when you read the book of Ruth next week, I want you to imagine Bilbo Baggins (laughs) kind of bumbling around in the background. And I think that sets I think that sets the Mm. mood for Ruth uh, very well. Uh, but really the main, so Ruth is, and I think we're all familiar, most of us are familiar with the story. It's the story of this young Moabite woman who who pledges herself, who enters into a covenant with a, a Israelite widow, returns to Israel with the widow Naomi, and the two of them kind of through their, it's not quite righteous trickery in the way that we've seen some of the other ladies work, but it's actually, it's pretty close. Like there's some redemptive tomfoolery that happens in the book of Ruth. They kind of game the system in the way that they're able to as, as landless poor women, you know, in that day and age to kind of pull the levers of, of uh, Israel, Israelite, ancient Israelite inheritance law so that Ruth is able to be married uh, to a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and they're able to have stability and a happy life. And we find out at the end of the book that Ruth is the grandmother, great grandmother 
of King David. Um, and so then all of a sudden this little story about normal people kind of opens up and, and kind of finds its place in, in the epic that the, the biblical story is telling. And the golden thread, I think, that ties the Book of Ruth together is this idea of loving kindness or faithful love, uh, which is the Hebrew word <laughs> chesed. <laughs> mm, yes. How do you pronounce it, Clayton? Chesed. Chesed, yeah. Or hesed, sometimes people say it, or even chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. Uh, but that's translated in in English into is usually loving kindness or or uh, faithfulness. faithfulness, you know, covenant love. All of those things are are involved in Hesed, and I think you see it in each chapter, kind of in different ways. Uh, Ruth is almost like if you ask the Bible for a definition of loving kindness, it gives you the Book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than a a definition like a dictionary, you know, like it tells in story what loving kindness looks like. Uh, and our principal characters, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, all show faithful love in different ways. And, and it's just, it's neat to to notice that, you know, uh, as, as we go along. And I think as well, part of why I've always valued the book of Ruth is that it is such a pedestrian story. <laughs> Normal people... Nothing weird happens. Like there are no angels or demons in Ruth. Like it's just these Israelites and this Moabite lady, you know, trying to make their way in the world and and uh, find a stable situation. And yet, you know, we see Yahweh working through all these circumstances. And then again at the end, when we're given the the genealogy that that Ruth and Boaz are grandparents of David. Uh, that suddenly it's like, okay, now we see, you know, these little, this little, this little family story, the stakes of which don't seem to be any higher than this widow and this Moabite, this foreigner woman may starve to death because they're not, they're poor and landless. And then all of a sudden it, you know, we see that the stakes were actually quite high because this is how David came into the world. And then again, as Christian readers, we, you know, we can go a little further down the family tree and see that if it wasn't for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, that Jesus, uh, Jesus wouldn't have been born either. What is a, what is a kinsman redeemer? <clears throat> so the kinsman redeemer is, there aren't really laws that were given about it. It was. Just, it seems like it was more of a custom, a custom thing that that was just not just an Israel Israel thing, but a kind of an ancient Near Eastern idea. You know, so this is a day and age before a justice system that we would recognize. You know, there are no lawyers. Uh, you don't. You can't. There is no law office to go visit. There aren't documents to sign. Like none of that exists. And so, when there would be a dispute. Uh, with inheritance or something like that it would it's basically the nearest male relative to the family or to the situation whose obligation it would be to uh, redeem the 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 people out of debt or who would ha- who would have to buy or inherit the land or if it's a uh, like a manslaughter situation I think there's some to some extent, the Avenger of Blood can probably be read as the kinsman redeemer. Um, you know, just the, then, then it would be that man, probably, that man's job or role to then go and exact justice, such as it existed then, on someone who accidentally killed, you know, one of your relatives if they didn't go to the city of refuge. And so, yeah, I think we can think of the kinsman redeemer as sort of like, you know, the lawyer, cop, inheritor person or maybe if we want to kind of uh conceptualize it even more that like the kinsman redeemer is like the presence of kind of righteousness law and order coming into some chaotic situation mm-hmm. um you know so this is what we see in the story ruth and naomi are on the verge of destitution and have no prospects like they can't you know they're <laughs> They can beg and they can glean, which is what they do, and they'll survive. But like, there's no option for them to uh, to really flourish yeah. or to progress at all. And so Boaz, well, it's not Boaz actually; it's a nameless man who is closer to the family, and but he declines the uh, obligation, 
and then has to take his sandal off and, you know, basically be publicly humiliated for not, you know, fulfilling his obligation. But then it passes to Boaz because he's the next closest relative uh, to Abimelech. That's Naomi's dead husband. So then it's his obligation to basically inherit Abimelech's estate, which includes Ruth. What's the significance of the put your gar- the corner of your garment over me? Maybe it's most basic kind of children's Sunday school level that it's just this idea of, you know, it's a symbolic act that Boaz is declaring that Ruth is his responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've and we've kind of talked again, no legal system, no courts, no lawyers. And so these symbolic acts that they would do constituted like the legally binding action, you know, so when Jacob, or when Isaac blesses Jacob, it's not this magic spell he's saying, like the legal act is happening in him blessing Jacob. So it's the same kind of thing that Boaz is like legally binding himself and saying, okay, I'm going to take care of you. And, and, uh, uh, cause then they kind of strategize together. Cause Boaz knows that this other relative is not going to want to step into this situation, you know? And so they, then he and Ruth kind of strategize, like, okay, how can we get this other guy basically out of the way? <laughs> Which is, well, you know, and he's not a villain. Like, I mean, he he shirked his obligation, but like, I don't think he's framed as a bad guy. It's just that he's unwilling to. Well, in particular, because the to to fulfill the obligation. Well, the obligation comes with Ruth, and it right. it seems like that's what he can't take on. Right, right. Presumably because he's a good guy and he's already right. married. Right. Well, right, right. And she is a Moabite, you know, and and. And uh, there's a lot of bad blood between Israel and Moab, even up to this point in their history. And I believe Deuteronomy bars Moabites from entering the sanctuary or entering the courtyard. So, I mean, there's there's a lot on his side, you know, to say, like, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't marry a Moabite. Mm-hmm. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Look, I'm ready, you know. Let's do it. We'll have a good podcast. <laughs> You're ready. You know, my wife will do this occasionally where uh, she'll be like 45 minutes late to something uh-huh. and I haven't put on my shoes yet. <laughs> and then she'll be like, I'm waiting on you. And I'll be like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs>